Well, this morning we have the uh, joy of coming back to our study of Matthew and to a final set of healings that come in a string of healing accounts uh, all the way from uh, Matthew 8 uh, through the end of chapter 9. And this one involves the healing of two blind men and a separate man, a man who is mute because of demon possession. Each one of these, uh, like the ones before it, illustrate some profound truths to us beyond the healings themselves. They teach us about the identity, the authority of Christ, but they also illustrate for us the nature of faith and of unbelief. The account today that we're looking at is particularly punctuated by unbelief. Matthew highlights it at the very end of these two accounts of healing, at the very end really of all of these uh, healings that we have seen in chapter 8 and chapter 9, as if to say when it's all said and done, when Jesus had done everything he had done and demonstrated everything he had demonstrated, that the people were still unbelieving. Everything Christ did, everything that he uh, performed, all the ways he validated himself, he gave every proof, he gave every reason for Israel to accept him, he gave every reason for every person ever born to believe in him, and inexplicably, when it was all said and done, they still didn't. This is an account of unbelief. It's the nature of unbelief. It's predisposed to its own viewpoint. It says that it wants proofs, that it wants evidence, but it continues to reject the truth in the face of evidence, even when it has no answer for the reality and the truth of Christ, it will still continue to reject him. It draws its own conclusions really before it does examination. Unbelief wants to make you think that it's neutral, that it's objective, that it is rational, that it demands evidence. But when you present it with the evidence of Christ, it demands more and more and more. And when it receives the evidence, it still refuses to accept it. Because unbelief isn't really looking for evidence, it's looking for excuses. Unbelief really doesn't want the truth, what it wants is its own self-indulgence. It's not looking for reasons to believe, it's looking for reasons to justify its own unbelief. It says that it wants standards, but it really has false standards. It examines the evidence, but it comes to the wrong conclusions. It establishes standards for God's truth that it doesn't apply to other truth claims. And when you're dealing with an unbeliever, an unbelieving mind, you're not dealing with the impartial, the unbiased, the open, the objective mind. The unbeliever may want to appear that way, but they're not. The unbelieving mind is not. It is biased toward its own self-centered system of life. In biblical terms, it's hostile to the truth. It looks at the truth, it accuses the truth of either simplicity or irrationality, or in some cases, even of evil. It'll accuse the truth of evil. Now, we have that illustrated for us today in glaring fashion in these two accounts that are in front of us, 
As I said, it's a passage that centers on two of Jesus' miracles and, just as importantly, two responses to these miracles. The first coming from a couple of blind men and then after that coming from the religious elite, the religious leadership, the ones who, as Paul says in Romans chapter 2, want to be seen as guides to the blind, as lights in the darkness. But ironically, what we see in this passage is that it's actually the blind men who have a clearer vision of what's right in front of them. Let me just read this passage so we can listen to what God's word has to say to us. As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-possessed, excuse me, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke and the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. Two miracles here that illustrate really two responses to, to gospel truth. The first one is these blind men who see the son of David. The blind, man, blind men who see the son of David. Matthew tells us in verse 27, this all took place when Jesus was passing on from there. That is uh, seemingly the house of Jairus. So he had just risen or just raised from the dead Jairus' daughter And now he's returning to his home or maybe the home of Peter. Jesus says he had no place to lay his head, so probably staying in Peter's house while he was in Capernaum. And with such a sort of public and dramatic miracle that had just taken place, you could just imagine as he made his way back to his home that evening, the throngs of people who were crowding the streets as he went, trailing along as he made his way back to Peter's house. And then somewhere in this massive crowd, these two blind men walking along, feeling their way, touching the shoulders, the arms, the elbows of people around them so that they could be brought along with the movement of the people around them. By the way, this wouldn't have been an unheard of scene. Blindness was quite common In those days, as it isn't so much in our days, the lack of general hygiene resulted in a much higher rate of blindness than we experience today. MacArthur mentions this. He says that unsanitary conditions, infectious organisms, blowing sand, accident, war, malnutrition, excessive heat, all combined to make blindness a constant danger. Many infants were born blind because of various diseases suffered by the mother during pregnancy. Many others became blind a few days after birth after being exposed to venereal disease as they passed through the birth canal, end quote. They didn't have the same means of of, uh, sanitizing and cleansing even babies at, at birth. And so what could be simple solutions weren't taken and consequently many people suffered. 
So the presence of blind men in public would not be really that remarkable in itself would not have drawn attention but what did draw attention was how these two men were behaving Matthew says they were crying aloud it's it's a word for intense wailing normally associated with some sort of anguish or or some sort of display of anxiety and emotion these men, as they were carried along in the throng of the people, were doing everything they could to lift their voices to be heard above all the commotion and the crowd, crying out with desperation, if by some means, in the midst of what is probably hundreds of people trying to get Jesus' attention. But it wasn't just their voices that would have caught attention, it was what they were saying. Have mercy on us. Son of David. That title has not been used at this point in Matthew's gospel, probably at this point, maybe not even used in Jesus' ministry. This is the first time we've seen it. But Matthew will use it six other times. It seems to have been something that slowly started to take hold and begin to sort of uh, uh, occur to people the use of this title, Son of David which in and of itself was pregnant with notions of messianic hope. Because every Jew, if they knew anything, they knew that a Messiah was coming and that he would be a descendant of David. And so to call someone the son of David was a title that was pregnant with messianic overtones. People would use it that way even later on when they were Responding to one of the miracles of Jesus, they began asking themselves in Matthew 12, 23, can this be the son of David? They understood all of these connotations. They understood what the, uh, what the potential was with Christ. It's interesting as you look at it, these six occurrences, because the majority of them are not actually coming from the crowds. They're coming from what we might consider to be the weak what we would consider to be the sick, maybe even the marginalized, the disenfranchised in society. And the reason that they used it so much is because they recognized that the Messianic kingdom had particular promises for them, that it was particularly filled with hope for them. Isaiah 35 describes these everlasting promises of God. It says, The eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Isaiah 29, In that day the deaf will hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. The meek will obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind will exalt in the Holy One of Israel. So all of their life, they had heard these promises, this discussion about the coming kingdom. There was an expectation that when the Messiah came, that he would usher in a new era when the marginalized, when the weak, when the forgotten, all would be filled with joy. And particularly, those who were suffering physically would experience blessing untold, the curse of sin, which had brought on it weakness bodily frailty, all of those things, the curse of sin would be done away with and all the implications, all of the 
all of the results of that, all of the blindness, all of the weakness, all of the deafness. So when these people began to hear about Jesus, they recognized that he was doing the works that they had spent their whole life thinking about and hoping for and looking forward to. And particularly, it was the marginalized who recognized Christ first. They were primarily the ones who were using this title. As I said, four of the six times this used in Matthew, it comes from the lips of those who were marginalized, disheartened, weak, forgotten. The world had passed over them, as it were. They didn't live lives of plush luxury. They didn't live lives that you would say the world had been kind to them. They didn't find their dreams fulfilled. They didn't find that this life was answering all of their hopes. They didn't live lives that found any satisfaction or much satisfaction in what this world had to offer. And so they were already turning their hearts and tuning their hearts to a messianic age. And so when Christ appeared, they were quick to recognize it. What was obvious for these unimportant and marginalized people, however, remained hidden to the theological elites, the religious establishment, the dignitaries, those who had all the training and all the background but were too full of themselves to see what was right in front of them. The outcast, the forgotten could see it, but the others couldn't. This always seems to be true with spiritual truth. Those who are enamored with this world, those who still find some reason in this world to hope, those who still think that this world has the answers, their heart isn't ready, their eyes are not open, they do not accept, they will not recognize Jesus for who he is. This has always been the pathway of the gospel. This is why Paul tells the Corinthians, since in the wisdom of God, the world did not come to know God through its wisdom. It pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save some. It's always been God's wise plan that the world would not come to know God through its wisdom. And even as the world gets more and more advanced, as they progress from sort of one technological and, and uh, industrial advancement to another, even as they move in various levels of civilization and education forward, they still are no closer to finding truth. And even as they face the truth, they, fame, uh, they, they sort of frame it all up in their sophistication and, f- and their philosophical argument and human opinion and justified desires and practical pursuits and all that stuff that dominates the world, they use that as their continued excuses for rejecting the gospel. This is because at its heart, humanity is enamored with itself. 
It's enamored with itself. It's enamored with its own achievements. It's enamored with its own philosophies, with its own musings. And so it's blinded to spiritual truth. It's a fundamental reason why this is the case. And it's because pride is at the center of every sin. It is pride that caused Satan to fall. It is pride that caused Adam and Eve to first disobey the Lord. It is pride that has caused every person who has rejected God to place their hope and their trust in their own justification, their own righteousness, if you will. They parade themselves around in their opinions of themselves and their opinions of their opinions and in their pride. And all of it becomes an impediment to seeing Christ. But those who respond to Jesus are the ones who have, in one way or another, given up hope in themselves. They don't hope in themselves any longer. They have seen their weakness. They have seen their frailty. They have seen their failures. And so it's no surprise that these blind men would see Jesus before the religious elite could even see him. Those who had perfectly good eyes, those who could witness firsthand what Jesus was doing, because what blinded the religious elite is not their eyesight or deficiencies in their eyesight. What blinded them was their own self-opinion, was their own pride. And what gave these blind men the ability to see Christ, even though they couldn't physically process what was taking place in front of them, what gave them the ability to see what no one else could see was their humbled heart, not their eyes. This is why Paul goes on to tell the Corinthians in his letter to them, let no one deceive himself. If any one of you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he may become wise. In other words, you're not going to ever really realize the wisdom that you need to realize, the wisdom of God, until you admit your lack of wisdom, until you admit your foolishness, until you admit that you've lost your way, that you need a guide, that your pathway has been corrupted and misguided by your own sin. All of those are necessary prerequisites to seeing wisdom and seeing Christ. It's also why Paul tells the Corinthians, not many wise according to, world, to the world's standards, not many mighty, not many noble are called. That's everything that the world is seeking after. Those are the kinds of people that the world is seeking after. But all that stuff is the kind of stuff that typically blinds someone to Christ. So the glory of the gospel lies in the fact that God is merciful to the very people who most everyone else would write off, but they are the ones who because of their own humility and because of many times their own brokenness, they're the ones who actually have the eyes to see the truth. And to see wisdom. And so they're actually filled with wisdom. 
Don't misinterpret that, by the way. None of this sort of, sort of paradox that we're talking about, none of it suggests that God is opposed to knowledge or to uh, wisdom itself or to any of uh, those kinds of things that come through the challenge of studying and thinking deeply and pondering and all of that. God, in other words, does not put a premium on ignorance. What he's opposed to is not knowledge per se. What he's opposed to is prideful knowledge. In fact, Paul tells the Corinthians, among the mature, we do impart wisdom. It's just simply not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this way age who are doomed to pass away. So Paul says, yeah, we are, we are actually all about wisdom. We're all about knowledge. We're all about deep things. We're all about profound things. We're all about discovery. We're all about thinking. But the beginning step to this kind of wisdom that, we're, that we are proclaiming is the confession that all of the wisdom, all of the uh, sort of exalted opinions that you've been seeking so far are rooted in prideful humanity. And the beginning step then of all of this is to confess the pride of this world, to confess the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. You do that, and your eyes become open to a brand new world of wisdom, a brand new world of hope, a brand new world of salvation. So again, it's no surprise that these blind men would be the ones who see Christ, who understand who he is. Because of their circumstances in life, they had already reached a kind of humility that caused them not to be looking for answers in this world. And so they were willing to confess their belief in Jesus before anyone and everyone else crying out that the son of David would have mercy on them. Now Matthew tells us that they, Jesus arrived at the house, he went inside and then he met these men inside. They came to him, uh, perhaps invited apart from everyone else in the crowd to come into the house And when they get inside, verse 28, Jesus asks them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Not quite sure why he asked them that question. It would seem that their determination in groping along and kind of going along in their blindness along with the crowd and crying out and in desperation and determination to be heard, it would seem that they had kind of already proved the fact that they believed But uh, probably, just like in all the other healings that Jesus did, he wanted to highlight the fact that he was responding particularly to their faith. He says it to the centurion. He says it to Jairus. He says it to the uh, hemorrhaging woman. All at one point or another, he highlights, he emphasizes, he might even question their faith at some point. And so he asked them, do you believe? And they respond, of course, yes, Lord. Yes, we do believe. What's really remarkable about these two men is that among all the people in the crowd that day, these were 
maybe the only two people who had literally not seen what Jesus did with Jairus' daughter. Their faith was in the most literal sense a blind faith. They were first century people. They were in the midst of all the milieu. But you have to understand, they hadn't seen anything. Everything that they were placing their faith and their hope in came by reports from other eyewitnesses, from other people. This is the essence, this is the picture of faith, which Hebrews tells us is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So here are these men, and they're willing to put themselves out there to make public proclamation, to even face the ridicule of the crowds, believing that this was the one who had come to fulfill all the promises of a restored kingdom. And so in that sense, they had reached a place of assurance in their heart that Jesus was the ultimate answer to God's promises. And they committed themselves to it with very loud and determined and public declaration of him as the son of David. The unspiritual people, they can't comprehend that kind of faith. They have no spiritual sense, or we might say it this way, they're too convinced of their own earthly natural senses. They're too secure, they're too sort of wedded to, they're too sort of confident in their own natural senses and their own opinions to be able to have this kind of spiritual sense. It's not as if they don't have faith. We all have faith. It's just a matter of what we're putting our faith in. We have faith. You have faith. I have faith. I'm getting on a plane this afternoon going to Kenya. I have faith that the mechanics of the plane are going to work. I have faith that the pilots have been trained and that they know their job and that they're going to do their job. You have faith when you go to work and you put in all those hours that at the end of a few weeks of time or whatever the pay period is that your employer is going to send you a check. You just do that believing. You have faith that what you drink out of a bottle isn't contaminated and won't kill you. You have faith that when you go to a doctor, he's going to perform his duties. You put your faith in experts, even when you aren't even qualified or you aren't even really trained to verify their research. You just believe in so many things, in so many people, a lot of times people you've never even met or people who are, who are behind the scenes producing all kinds of rules and products and things that you rely on every day. You've never seen them, you don't know them, and yet you just sort of believe And you place your faith in all sorts of things. You do it all the time. The issue isn't faith. The issue is what you're placing your faith in. Spiritual, however, they recognize that all of those things, all of those things for whatever good they may come, they aren't ultimately the answer to the most difficult questions of life. And so the spiritual comes to see the emptiness 
even sometimes the deception behind all of those so-called visible things. And they place their faith in a God that they can't even see. They trust His character. They accept His character. Even when it doesn't always come with a full roadmap of where it's going. These blind men, they didn't have to wait for Jesus to heal them. They didn't have to wait for Jesus to open their eyes. They didn't have to wait till they could finally see everything that he was doing. They had given up hope on all the empty promises of the world, and they were ready to put their hope and trust in the Son of David. That's what they did. Now, it's interesting. He brings them inside the house and he heals them. He says to them as he touches their eyes, according to your faith, be it done to you. Their eyes are open. And then in verse 30, he sternly warns them, see to it that no one knows it. You wouldn't expect that, right? You, you expect him to sort of want them to go out and, and proclaim what had just happened. But he, he wants them to keep this quiet. Not so much the miracle. That in itself was probably going to be obvious. In fact, Jesus had already done a number of public miracles. It wasn't so much the fact that he wanted people not to realize that these men had been healed. What he wants them to keep quiet is their declaration of him as the son of David. Because Jesus understands something. He understands that it's fine enough for someone to heal But it's a whole different matter, especially in Jewish society, for someone to claim to be the Messiah. That brings hostility. In fact, when Jesus gave uh, people outside of Israel and went to the Gentile territories, he healed them. He never gave them these kinds of restrictions. It was only those inside of Israel who were told things like this. Don't go and tell this to anyone. He knew his hour of suffering had not yet arrived. He knew that the time of the crucifixion wasn't here yet. He knew that he still had a lot to do in terms of training the disciples and proclaiming the gospel. And so he wanted them to keep this quiet, their, their belief, their trust in him as the Messiah. He wanted them to keep it quiet for a little while longer. Well, unfortunately, they didn't. I suppose it shouldn't surprise us. Uh, we have all seen the sort of overzealous new believer who doesn't always know when to keep themselves quiet. But they're not always the most self-controlled or the most tactful when they want to go tell other people that they had just seen the Savior. So they went out, disobedient probably in their zeal, And they spread his fame throughout all the district, Matthew says. But based on what happens next, Jesus' concerns about them going and proclaiming this seem justified because there's another miracle that happens right on the heels to this and uh, brings with us a totally different kind of response from these blind men. And it really takes us here to our second point. In verse 32, the religious who refused to recognize the Messiah. 
If the blind men are the ones who see the son of David, here these religious people are the ones who reject him as the Messiah. Matthew says that as these blind men were going out in verse 32, behold, a demon oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. All of this sort of taking place back to back. Literally, one goes out, another comes straight in. And as soon as uh, this man comes in, Jesus deals with him. He's not like the blind men. He apparently wasn't uh, born with his condition like they uh, probably were. This man had been deprived of his speech by a demon. He was demon oppressed. And we've already seen all the way back to chapter 4 that Jesus had dealt, dealt with a number of demon possessed or demon oppressed people. As we mentioned, it's rare for him to see it inside of Israel, and it may indicate that this guy had some sort of connection, some sort of life where he had been involved with idolatry, pagan worship, maybe the occult of some sort. But none of that is really Matthew's primary concern. In fact, his, he doesn't even mention the miracle itself. The whole sort of point of telling the story of this man is to get to the responses of the people. He doesn't even mention the miracle. He only tells us what happens afterward in verse 33. When the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. This was already sort of impressing the people, and now the momentum is just building, and it's obvious to everyone. But it wasn't just them. We also read... In verse 34, the Pharisees, however, they said he cast out demons by the prince of demons. This, um, this dynamic, as I said, has been building. The people were amazed at Christ and the Pharisees were taking notice. It'll continue to build over the next few months of his life. Later on in Matthew 12, 22, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus. He healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw, and all the crowds were amazed, saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? So just as the blind men had already become convinced of his status as Messiah, others were at least becoming open to it beginning to entertain it. And rightly so. I mean, his miracles were undeniable and it had implications for the Jewish mind. They knew that the Messiahship would come with this kind of deliverance. They knew that these were the credentials of Messiah and people were beginning to connect the dots. And Jesus, excuse me, and Matthew is just highlighting all of this sort of developing favoritism towards Christ. But it wasn't just the crowds who were connecting the dots. It was also the Pharisees, the religious elite. Jesus had demonstrated already over and over and over again his dominance over the physical world by healing the sick, his dominance over the demonic world by casting out demons, his dominance over the physical world by calming the storm. He had done all of these things and they were publicly verifiable. They were instantaneous. They were permanent. They were total. 
This was no fluke. They couldn't deny his power to heal every kind of disease and to cast out any number of demons or even restore the dead to life. His supernatural powers really were reaching the point where they were beyond question. It was obvious to everyone. It was, uh, it was apparent that, that he wasn't just sort of somebody with a few tricks in his bag. He was doing this over and over and over again on a broader and broader scale. And their response from all of that isn't what you might expect. Because for all of their recognition of his power, for all of their even amazement at his signs, for all of the connection between what he was doing and biblical prophecy, their stunning response is to say that he cast out demons by the prince of demons. In other words, they take the astounding and miraculous and powerful truth of Christ and they actually accuse the truth of evil. They couldn't deny it. They only had two options, either acknowledge it as being from God or attribute it to some other phenomenon And so they choose the latter. They attribute it to something else. Not because the work of Christ had any sort of deficiency to it. Not because it was anything other than powerful and compelling and perfect. Even aligning perfectly with the prophecies of Scripture. None of that was a problem. They saw exactly what Christ was doing. And they themselves understood precisely what had been told in the in the scripture their problem wasn't a deficiency of the evidence or the information that they had the deficiency wasn't with any of that it was in their hearts the deficiency was with them because their mind and their heart was dominated by something other than a love for the truth. Their mind and their heart was dominated by something other than a love for the truth. Romans 1 tells us that this has been the universal testimony of humanity from the beginning of time. Even though they see the evidence of God all around them, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Here the Pharisees had other interests that dominated their hearts. It comes out later in John 11, the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees convened a council after the raising of Lazarus from the dead, and they were saying, what are we doing? This man is performing, performing many signs. Remember, Nicodemus came to him in the secret of night and says, we know that you come from God because no one could do this. No one could do these kinds of signs unless God had sent him. The issue wasn't that Christ's works were insufficient. The issue is that other things were dominating their heart. They say there in John 11, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. 
They weren't interested in the truth. They were interested in protecting their position and protecting their influence and protecting their power and their love of this world. In that sense, they're no different than any other unbeliever, even those who aren't politicians, even those who aren't aristocratic, powerful people. Every unbeliever rejects the truth because they're trying to protect their worldly attachments. Whatever indulgences they're seeking, whatever hope they're placing in this world, whatever earthly pursuit dominates their life, that becomes the dominating influence in their heart. Not the love of the truth. And they will deny whatever you put in front of them about the truthfulness of the gospel or of Christ and they will continue to manufacture criticisms and deficiencies for Christianity, for the church, for the gospel, for Christ himself. Because their purpose isn't to search out the true source of Christ or his miracles, their purpose is to make excuses for their own rejection. That was these guys. They actually proved themselves to be more blind than blind men. They actually proved that although they had all the advantages, all the privileges, physical health, good eyesight, religious upbringing, knowledge and understanding in the word of God, theological framework. They had all of that stuff. But they were more blind than blind men because the love of the truth wasn't what dominated their hearts. So many of us, we do see. And the reason we see is because everything in this world has already proven itself to be broken to us. The philosophies, the truth claims, the claims of virtue and superiority, all that this world has to offer, we've already seen it's riddled with holes and inconsistencies and even hopelessness. As Paul says to the Corinthians, this is a wisdom that's of this age and it's doomed to pass away. Every generation, every age invents its own worldview, its own wisdom to replace the outdated, outmoded, useless, vacuous worldview, truth view that dominated the previous generation. But those who are born again, Peter says, are born not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and its glory 
like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news of the gospel that we preach to you. God is speaking to you today. He's presenting himself to you. Will you see him? Or will you continue to cling to the things that are blinding your heart and mind? Let's stand as we're dismissed in a word of prayer. Father, we are so grateful that though we were blind, now we see. That though we had filled our, our life with sin and clung to it and defended it, that although we made excuses, we even accused you of falsehood. We are the fools, and you are wise. And we cast ourselves at your mercy. We say to you, have mercy on us, son of David. We take our place behind and beside all those who although they have not seen you, we love you. And although we do not see you now, we rejoice in you with joy inexpressible. We cling to you with the eyes of faith, believing in you above every other hope because you are the living God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.